0: Day to all you who are fathers, if your father is still living, I would encourage you to give him a call today, because parenting is tough stuff. As one guy said, maybe it doesn't sound very spiritual, but some phases of family living can be a real grind. You know, you think about that, it really is. It's very hard at times, keeping a household of busy children going in the same direction, maintaining good communication living unselfishly with one one another day in and day out under the same roof, remaining positive, affirming, dealing with strong wills. Sometimes they're your wife's strong will. No, no, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes it's the husband. <laughs> yeah, where am I at? uh I won't dig the hole any deeper. <laughs> Bottom line, there's a lot of struggles, right? There is. There really is. You're struggling with yourself. You're struggling sometimes even in your marriage. Then you're then you have children on top of that, and you know, and then your children start leaving the home, and that's a different that's a difference there. You don't treat I don't treat my married daughter as I do my unmarried daughter, and it takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lot of energy. Um, I was listening to Swindoll this morning, and he said, a synonym for parenting is sacrifice. And that's true. To be a parent, to be a good parent, takes a lot of sacrifice. But, you know, I also think this, we need to lighten up. Uh, I was, I was uh, tied pretty tight there when I was, when I was first uh, a parent. And we need to uh, lighten up. My wife always says, you know, laugh some more. Laugh a little, you know. Actually, I was looking up some old, uh, one of my favorite uh, artists, Cartoon artist was uh, John McPherson, so I want to want to kind of give you his perspective just to kind of lighten things up. Again, parenting can be stressful. <laughs> so, is this your first baby? <laughs> then there's new experiences. This is Frank's first cha- uh, time changing the baby's diaper. <laughs> By the way, fathers, have you changed the diaper? I've I've talked to fathers and said, no, I'd never do that. Anyways, there's misunderstandings. This is not what I had in mind when I asked you to take the baby for a stroll. (laughs) And this is a huge uh, misunderstanding. That's the baby's thermometer. Sometimes there's excuses we make. He doesn't have a discipline problem. He's just a little too just has a, a little bit too much sugar. That's all. Kid's totally destroying the house. <laughs> yeah, don't blame it on the sugar. Now what have I told you? Never bother mommy when she's in the bathroom. She's got her TV. <laughs> and then there's the times when you think your expectations have been met. I can't believe you actually cleaned up the entire room in five minutes. <laughs> And then there's the perspective of the adult child. Now here's now here here's the funny part dad. You know the things gone through the wall. Oh, it's amazing. You do have to lighten up. I've learned over time that children really are a blessing from the Lord. You know, but sometimes when they're in that formative stage and you're trying to just to keep them together you forget that You know, family is important. Family is very, very important. In fact, one of the signs of a crumbling culture is the crumbling of the home. And you know, we see that, right? The crumbling of the home. There's an interesting statistic out there. A quarter of all kids do not live with both parents. 25%. And if you get to some, in some areas, some um, demographics, like in African-Americans, Two-thirds of the children do not live with both parents. Two-thirds. Which I only bring that up because I say to myself, you know what? We need to have an understanding heart. You may have a family that's together. You may even have generations upon generations that are together. But you know what? Not everyone's dealing like that. And there are a lot of hurts out there. I know a lot of you have been hurt. Some of you are adults and you're very hurt because of what parents did years and years ago. Some of you are children and you're dealing with it right now. The reality is we need to show a lot of grace to those around us, because they're dealing with a lot of different issues, perhaps that you're not dealing with. Now, for this morning, we're going to look at Psalms 127. We just want to get a a couple concepts, a few things out of Psalms 127, the passage I just read. What's interesting with Psalms, this particular passage, is that Psalms 127 and 128 really kind of go together. If you notice in verse 1, the Lord builds a house. And he goes through all the different things, including children and the blessing of children that they are to the family in verse 5. But then if you go to the end of verse 128, Psalms 128 verse 6, it says, Yes, uh, may you see your children's children's children. He ends by talking about your grandkids. They really are uh, two Psalms that work together. Now, we're only going to be looking at Psalms 127 today. But the idea is, it's not just about today. I mean, I look, about, I look at Pat and Ashley, and I see this little girl called Venora. You know, and it's like, by the way, she doesn't really look much like me, I don't think. She really, she really looks a lot like the Palmers. Every time I look at her, I think, this is a Palmer baby. <laughs> well, it is. Pat and Ashley Palmer. But the point is, you know, as we live our lives, it's not just about today. It's not just about our own kids. It's about our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And and the question that rolls around in my mind is, what will my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my great-great-great-grandkids say, if Lord Terry's about Grandpa Prince? Me. What are they going to say about Grandpa John? Am I going to end strong? Am I going to, when they mention my name, will there be a blessing attached to it? Or will it be like, boy, he, he ran well for a while. So again, we want to get a good foundation to our own lives, know what God expects from us, so that we can end well. Albert Mo- Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, said this about leaving a legacy. You are an ancestor to someone yet to come. Now think about that. You are an ancestor to someone yet to come. Now, again, if the Lord tarries, you will be. You know, we always think, well, the Lord's going to come within the next five years, next ten years. He may not. He may tarry for another hundred years. You're going to be an ancestor to someone yet to come. If you live your life knowing you are an ancestor, that will change the way you change your, uh, that you make your decisions, the way you live your life, the way you love your wife. It's going to change everything. I want to, I want to end strong. I want to leave a legacy for the the children that come behind me. I want my marriage to be exemplary for my kids. So again, how does that work? Well, let's look at the foundation of a home. And if you want to fill in Roman numeral one, the foundation of a home is found in verses one and two. Let me read them again. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, teeth eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. It's in vain to do things without the Lord. Notice, and it's emphatic, unless the Lord builds the house. It is emphatic in the Hebrew, as I am told. It's in the first place of the sentence, unless the Lord does it. Now again, we may quickly run over that thought, but unless the Lord builds the house, now he's not talking about God holding the hammer in the building process. God holding the sword or the spear in the protecting process. No, he's talking about the fact that God is the very foundation of the home if it's going to truly stand. He is the unseen builder. He is the unseen protector of the home i.e. the Lord himself is to be the center of our home. The very center. In fact, I'm going to mention this probably a couple of times, but if you think about it, the Lord Jesus Christ should be the center. If you think about a circle, I didn't draw, but if you think of a circle and then take a bigger circle and then draw spokes like the spokes of a wheel, and then you can put in all the different aspects of your life, whether it's you as a husband or a wife or your, fa- your family as far as children, your work, Recreation, how you are as a citizen, uh, area of sex, uh, area of all the different other recreational sports things that you have, everything. The point is this. Your life is this. All the different areas of your life, but they all go back to Christ. They all go back to Christ. He is the center. If I'm really going to build a home that honors Christ, he has to be the center of that home. So again, the, the psalmist... It's very clear that it's hopeless, by the way. Look at what the second part of of each verse says. They labor in vain who build it. Actually, the way the Hebrew says is in vain they labor to build it. Vain is, again, the emphatic spot. So he's really drawing a contrast between the fact that either it's the Lord that's ahead of your home or it's just in vain. And he does the same thing when it says the watchman stays awake in vain. It really is this, in vain the watchman stays awake. You can try to do a lot of things, but if the Lord is not the center, and we're going to get into some more of that, but if he's not the center, it's vain. As one man said, Work, quote, work, strive, fret, worry, plan, strain, all you wish. Now, by the way, do we do that? Work, strive, fret, worry, plan, strain, all you wish. But if the Lord is not the very center of your home, all your additional, additional effort to make it strong is futile and worthless. Do you believe that, mom and dad? Do you really believe that, that unless he is the center, everything else is really futile? Well, again, you can give yourself tests along the way. Am I really depending on him? Am I really getting into his word on a regular basis to find out what he even expects in my home? Am I walking with God? Am I fellowshipping with him? Am I meditating on his word? Am I praying? The reality is, if he's not the center, we can work and work. In fact, it can even look good for a while. It can look like you're really making progress and aren't your kids so cute? Aren't they well-behaved? But the reality is, it may not be that it's a God-centered home. So again, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. It's got to be the center of the home. Not only that, but look at the second part. He needs to also be the center of our life and work. It's not just the home, but even when you leave the home for work, especially men. Again, the idea of vain means empty. Nothing. Doesn't amount to anything. Vanity. Look at verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late. It's about making a living, about working long hours. And by the way, it's not wrong to work long hours. We have to work. In fact, I think sometimes maybe for some Americans, the thing that God would say is you're lazy. You're slothful. So I'm not not downing hard work, but sometimes we think that our hard work is what's going to make it. And it's hard work along with the Lord. And I don't mean workaholic where you don't ever have time for the kids or your wife. Obviously, that's what I'm working against. The point is this, that long, hard hours by themselves will never result in a godly, happy home. In fact, look at that one part right there. It says, "...you will only eat the bread of sorrows." I think New American says this: "You will only eat the bread of painful labors." In other words, you will be satisfied, but it will be with painful labors. That's all you're going to get. It's going to be kind of like gravel in your mouth. So again, what is God's plan? For so He gives His beloved sleep, sleep. You know, uh, one of the things I've been learning, and maybe it's just because I'm getting a little older, you, you can't burn the wick on both sides. You have to have downtime. I mean, I think it's important that you see that he gives his beloved sleep, rest, and relaxation is critical. Think about Old Testament Israel; they had to take the Sabbath and make it a day of rest. If you, if you just keep, and again, this is hard. It's actually very hard for me because what you know, I believe the day of rest should be Sunday, and yet I'm preaching; it's, it's, it's a lot of work. But even for some of you, it's hard. I mean, I know that you work, and yet you serve on Sundays. You do this, that, and, and it's very, very difficult. How do you keep the balance? But I would say this, that you need to have rest. You need to have downtime. I know the last few weeks I've been on vacation, and I've been noticing just even a difference in perspective. Uh, the first week, three weeks ago, I went to my niece's wedding, and then last, uh, two weeks ago I went to a marriage uh, weekend. It was a seminar um, that so and I went to that was excellent. In fact, it was very, very good. It was put out by Family Life, not the one down the road, but the International Family Life. Dennis and Barb, I think it's her name, is Barbara Rainey. And uh, they actually have a a series because they say, well, a lot of people can't either spend the money or the time going to an entire weekend and all the cost of a hotel and stuff. They actually redesigned. It wasn't just someone taking a video camera of it. Uh, They redesigned it into a weekend where you could bring it right into the uh, church and we purchased it, and we're going to offer that here another three or four weeks. So I would encourage you, if you're, if you're a married couple, to sign up for that. It's going to be a Friday night, Friday to Saturday uh, afternoon, and then you end with uh, like a date night on Saturday night. So it's a two-day deal, uh, Friday night starting around 7 o'clock. Uh, but six sessions, it's excellent. It's absolutely excellent. But it was good for us to get away. It was good for us to think Sometimes you get running so fast, you need just time to, you know, think. And then last week, um, I was here, but uh, Brent uh, did the message. Excellent job and, with the grads and stuff like that. But the point is, by the way, let me say this, because people are saying, oh, boy, you're an awful lot. Well, one, I mean, some of it was my vacation, one of it was a seminar. But the other thing is, understand that I'm still working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. It's just I'm not here on Sunday. Now, why do I say that? I don't know. But the point... <laughs> No, I do I do know why I'm saying that because there's going to be a couple other times that I'm going to be off. And I actually need to do that because we need to decide how we're going to run the summer and starting September. And there's a couple of weeks where I just need to take off, have someone else in the pulpit so that for that Sunday or that week, I can focus on planning. It's hard for me to plan and preach because it's like I got, I'm always thinking about. So if you see me out of the pulpit a couple times more, maybe even three or four times more over the course of the next six months, that's one of the reasons it helps me to be able to plan. Anyways, the point is this. I know what, what the question in my mind was during these last three weeks. Am I too busy? And I would ask you this. Are you too busy? Are you too hurried? Are you too stressed? Has your bow, as it were, bent too long? And in other words, there's an ancient Greek model that says this. You will break the bow if you keep it always bent. You'll break the bow if you always, you know, the bow arrow if you keep it and it always has 10 you'll break it it needs to be released i remember my dad he used to he used to hunt um deer with a bow and back then it wasn't compound just a standard and but every time he came in you know he would he would release the the string so that it, it had it could relax and then he would you know he bring it back when he would go out and stuff like that so the point point is you got to release the the tension <coughs> has your bow been bent too long are you living on adrenaline? Again, be careful because we can start thinking that somehow we're accomplishing and it's really not God blessing. We're getting it done. See, what is he talking about? This idea of sleep. He gives his beloved even in his sleep. That's the New American version. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. In other words, God blesses even when you're sleeping. He's, he is producing his results even when... What do you mean? How, how can he do it when I'm sleeping? Because, because if I'm walking with him, the seeds I've planted are continuing to grow even when I'm not laboring at it, right? Like Corinthians says, I mean... Some of us plant, some of us uh, water, but God gives the increase. And that's true in our families. That's true in our marriages. If we walk with God, it continues to grow even while we're at rest. See, that's why God has to be the center. All your labor and effort cannot be a substitute for what God can do. Long hours, painful labors, rising early, retiring late can never replace your allegiance to the Lord and his presence in your home. Money can't do it. Circumstances can't do it. Things, events, whatever you might say. So what are we saying? That Jesus Christ has to be the center. It starts with a personal relationship with him. It starts when a person understands that their sin condemns them before God. And that they need a savior. And they realize that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for mankind's sin on the cross. And they put their faith and trust in Christ not just a savior but his lord and savior he becomes the master yes he takes their sin but and gives us his righteousness but we commit ourselves to following him we walk with him that's the foundation of a good home see sometimes we start with foundations and we talk about husbands love husbands you know lead and wives you know um, respect and submit. Well, those are true and all the things about children, but you know what the real foundation is? A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, have you have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is He the center now? Like I was saying, the spokes of the wheel center, that everything that you do... <laughs> by the way, that's the way you should look at the priorities of your life. Sometimes you hear people say, well, the priority of my life is Lord first and my wife second and children and work and sometimes though think about that that's hard to think that way because a lot of times you say well the lord he should you know he should be my focus and therefore well how much time should i spend with the lord well the reality is in that list type thing most of you spend 40 or 50 hours at work do you see how that kind of conflicts with the fact of the fact that the lord is first well i don't spend 40 hours in well i might but most people don't as far as in prayer and bible study But the better way to look at your priorities is to say it's like a center is Christ and the spokes of a wheel and everything that I do in my life is, is centered on Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by having Christ as the center. A traveler paid a guide one time to take him across the desert. When the two men arrived at the edge of the desert, the traveler looking ahead saw before him trackless sands without a single footprint path, footprint, path, or marker of any kind. I mean, he was kind of befuddled. Turning to his guide, he asked in a tone somewhat surprised, where is the road? With a reproving glance, the guide replied, I am the road. What am I saying? Teach your child, and I hope you've taught yourself that Jesus Christ is the road. He's the way, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What did Jesus, what did Jesus continue to tell his disciples? You, even he told Peter at the end, even just before he left. You, what? Follow me. I'll be your guide. He is your guide to salvation. He is your guide through life. He is the center of our life. So that's what it means. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. Some of us are laboring in vain. I've labored in vain. If you find yourself right now saying, you know, I'm laboring in vain. It's just like oh, I feel like I'm on a treadmill. As a parent, I'm just trying to, just remember, he can bless you even in your sleep. Even while you're sleeping, if you're walking with him. Because the seeds that you plant will continue to grow, even when you're not working on that particular plant. Especially when that plant is your children. Well, let's look at the second part of this psalm. (coughs) Actually, we turn to children. Verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a heritage. This is the additions of children to the home. Additions, that's the key word. Additions. Notice he uses the word behold, at least the New King James says, behold. In other words, pay attention. Listen up. Listen up. Don't forget this. You know, I always think of when I was in in the, well, sometimes I even have to do this but uh, at home, and you're trying to teach your kids something, and their minds are like, uh, and I always think about you know going up to them periodically. I actually physically had to do this, and I actually went to them and got their chin, and said, "Now nah, I want you to pay attention." You know, you got their eye to eye. I think that's what the psalmist is saying right here, with the word "Behold." Pay attention. Listen up. Children are a heritage from the Lord. In other words, he actually names three things about children. They are a heritage, they are a reward, they are like arrows. He's like, brawn is But the point is, is this they are welcomed in our home. That's what he's getting at. They're a blessing. When my wife and I got married June 4th, 1983. Beautiful. She was gorgeous then, and she's still gorgeous now. But the point is, let's get on to something else. Um, <laughs> so and I were holding hands, and then a couple years later, we had our first little daughter, Ashley Grace, and what we what did we do? Well, one of us kind of like dropped our hands and started to hold her hand, and now our circle became bigger. By the way, it was a home before that. It was a marriage that was a home, but now, and then, you know, as, as you know, in our family, it just kept getting bigger, you know. <laughs> But then here a year and a half ago in January sixteenth. Been pretty good at this. Anyways, bottom line is this. With Ashley, not with the rest of the kids, the rest of the kids are still holding on to my hand, but with Ashley, what she did is she dropped my hand. She dropped Sola's hand. That was hard. And anyways, but grabbed a good guy's hand, Pat's, and they started their own little circle. But the point is... What is the point? I'm getting Uh, (laughs) teary-eyed. The point is the circle. But see, I know what the point is. It would be wrong for me to say that she's still in our circle. She's not in our circle. She's in her own little circle. In fact, she's added another one in our circle. You know, Venora. And, you know, probably have some other ones in then, But finally, there will become a day when some guy or some girl comes along with one of my boys and they drop out of the circle. They don't drop out of my life, but the circle that I'm controlling... As a leader, I'm no longer the same type of leader to to my kids. See, the heritage, we have to understand what children are. They're added to the circle, but they don't make the circle. They're added to our homes. They don't make the home. The home is soul and I. When it's all said and done, we're the priority relationship. This is where a lot of marriages go bad because it's as the kids are leaving, they start saying, well, we don't have anything. And when the last kid leaves, or just before the last kids leave, the one of the spouses leave because they didn't build that their marriage was the priority. Make sure your marriage is the priority and your children are just welcome members into the family. Anyways. Priority relationship. Well, let's look at this priority relationship. I just want to, and it's not in your outline, but just let's think about it real quickly. You have a, You have a male, female. That's how God made it. You have a husband and wife. You have a father and mother. You have the father. Let's take the father first. What are we told over in Ephesians? Ephesians says this, that the husband is the head of the wife, and he's to love her like Christ loved the church, right? By the way, that's the same way that it should happen with the husband, the father towards the kids. He should be the loving leader to his children. You know, it's interesting what happens when the husband is not the loving leader. Isaiah says this, the father shall make known your truth to the children. The father shall make known the truth to your children, not the mother. Fathers, are you teaching your kids scripture? Are you teaching them the ways of God? Are you teaching about the Lord? Let me give you that verse. It's Isaiah 38, 19. The father shall do this. By the way, I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. I'm only here to expose you to what God expects. We need to be the loving leaders, not only to our wives, but to our children. There's a sobering truth over in Judges 2. This is what it says. Now, this is Judges after Joshua. Through the book of Joshua, you see basically Israelites conquering the land in the sense of taking over all the main spots but what they were supposed to do is basically uh continue to drive out the canaanites and all the ites and they didn't and this is what it says in chapter 2 verse 7 so the people served the lord all the days of joshua he was the main leader and all the days of the elders who outlived joshua joshua and all the men who followed joshua as long as those leaders were there they continued down the path Who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which He had done for Israel? Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was a hundred and ten years old, and they buried him within the border of the inheritance of Timnah, Harish, in the mountain of Ephraim. Verse ten: When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. Nor the works which he had done for Israel. That is one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. They followed him with Joshua. They followed him when the elders after Joshua continued to live after Joshua died. But there came another generation. They didn't follow the Lord. They didn't know of the Lord. They didn't even know of his works. And you might say, well, how in the world could that have happened? I believe this it was because the fathers did not do like Deuteronomy 6 says teach them diligently teach them diligently. That word diligently is an intensive form. Fathers, teach your kids because if you don't, they might be the other generation. They might tell stories of going to church but not know the Lord and not know the power that the Lord can do in their own personal lives. See, fathers, and I mean parents too, and by the way, my wife, has sacrificed much so that she could stay home, so that she could raise, you know, uh, help raise our children. And for to be honest with you, a lot of what you see in my own personal children is her doing. But one thing that convicts me, and it has been convicting me over the last quite a few months, I need to have a bigger part in this, okay? Sometimes I don't lead. I just get busy. Hey, life is busy. Pastoring is busy. But we have to make the sacrifice. What I have found is I've just had to turn off the tube. I've had to shut down the radio. That's my extra time. That's what I have to sacrifice because my kids are worth it. My family's worth it. So you've got to be diligent. We have to transfer biblical truth. But you know, transferring biblical truth is not this. Now I want you to get uh, Roman numeral one, verse number one, uh, A, uh, God is loved. You got that written down? God is, yeah, love, L-O-V-E. Now we're talking about transferring these principles in normal life it's when they come in and they say well my friend just criticized me what do i do well let's think about this from a biblical standpoint you got to teach them and i'm not saying that you don't formally teach them at times but so much of it is informal right it's taking time again there was a generation back then that didn't even know god so that's the father. The father should be the leader. I hope that you take it. I hope you see that you're the leader of the home. You're the leader of your wife. You're the leader of your children. But then we also come to the mothers. And I'm only going to say a, a, just a short thing on this. Um, what should a mother do? Well, let's take a wife. Let's, take, let's put the wife-mother role together for a moment. What is the mother in a home? What is the wife in a home? <coughs> Again, at that uh, conference, uh, one of the things that the Raineys, and they weren't there, but we got a book and some other things. But Barbara Rainey uh, said, you know, just, just gave a, a short thing about what is a, a wife to do? And I think, again, it transfer right over into a mother. See, because this is what I find a lot of mothers saying, or wives. Well, he just doesn't want to lead. And by the way, I think it is hard for men to lead. I don't personally like to lead. And you go way back to Genesis chapter 3 and you find that it says part of the curse is that the woman's desire will be for the man. And the word desire means that there's going to be this conflict in who's going to lead. It's natural in the sense of sinful natural that it's going to be a conflict for the husband and wife on who's going to lead. And sometimes the wife or the husband backs off and the wife just takes over the role. But really, what does God expect? Well, you find from Genesis 2 that she should be a helper. What is helping? A helper means willing followership. Followership. That's what, how someone put it. I like that. You know, I'm willing to follow. I'm willing to pick up the broken pieces. I'm willing to fill in the, the missing pieces. The first big thing is wives, mothers. Are you willing to help your husband be a good leader? What do you mean? If he's not a leader, he's not a leader. No, no. You can help him. You can encourage him. The second word is the word submit. I know that grates on a lot of people. We've had people leave this church because I preach that the wife should be submissive. But what does it mean to be submissive? Again, to be willing to follow his leadership. There's a natural tendency or a negative tendency in many marriages, again, for the man to retreat from leadership. I think a wife can, can definitely encourage leadership by how she seeks to help and seeks to submit. Um, number three, this is a third aspect, is Respect. I have I've taught passages on marriage for many years, and I always went to Ephesians 5.33 where it says, and see that she respect her husband, the wife. And I just kind of briefed over that and thought, eh, you know, that's not that important, you know, or I respect whatever. I am starting to realize that that is the key. It's not so much the submission, it's respectfully submitting. You see the difference? You can submit. You've had kids, you know, go clean your room. No, I don't want a daddy. You know, kids. Oh, go clean your room. Okay. Well, that's not respectfully submitting or respectfully obeying. I think that's why Paul says, make sure she respects her husband. Barbara Rainey says this, there is no more powerful attitude that a wife can have towards her husband than respect. Pretty powerful statement. It's the attitude. Well, he, does, he hasn't earned it. It doesn't say he has to earn it. It says that you need to give it. Find the areas that you can. Help him develop in the areas that he can. And be willing to forgive. That's where respect is hard. If you're not willing to forgive, you're going to remember. And if you remember, how can I respect him? Well, is he he seeking to grow? Is he seeking to change? Respectfully submitting. And then finally, she brings up this. Cheering him on. Most men, for most men, their deepest fear is failure. And their deepest need is a confidence to know they can succeed. The kind of confidence only a wife can provide. See, we make mistakes. We make failures. We sin. I I need someone to help. You know what, what I need? I need someone supportive. I need some. Actually, you know what I need? You know what I really need in this life? I need a cheerleader. That's really what my wife is. I mean, she helps me make the decisions. Yes, we, we work together. I mean, I'm not, sometimes I just say, you know what? I don't really care. You just decide. All right, she can do it. She's still under there. But I need a cheerleader. I need someone to help me even raise the kids. Sometimes, you know, she'll do it in such a way so that, like, maybe like this. Like, the book is there that you want to have devotions, and everything is all set up, and all you have to do, man, is sit down, and everything is ready to go because she has helped in the entire process. She didn't make it hard. She made it real easy. And the times that I fail, she'll come along and, you know, honey, you're a good guy. Yeah, I know you failed these last three times, but you're a good guy. <laughs> I'm not saying we always do this perfect, but that's oneness. That's supportive. That's really being a helper. See, that's being a helper. That, I'm telling you, the respect and cheering them on, it is hard to lead. There is this sense of fear of failure you want, because you want to try new things. You want to, but sometimes it's easy, man. If you have a critical, nagging, cynical spouse, it's hard to try anything. Well, that's a that's kind of I've really veered, but I wanted to veer because when I when I get into children, let's make sure we understand there's male and female, husband and wife, and and we have to be doing husband-wife things right to really see children. Done right? You get it? You can't be a real pathetic husband or wife and say, but you know, it just doesn't seem like our family is doing and functioning right. Well, let's look at children for a minute. I can see I'm going to run out of time. Children are what? First of all, are a gift. Actually, the New American uses the word gift. Children are a heritage, are a gift from the Lord. Heritage. The, the word heritage actually or gift actually means possession from the Lord, possession from the Lord. The Lord owns, the Lord's, the Lord's. But the other idea is like a possession or property that was assigned to somebody. The gist of it is this, that the Lord, it's the child is the Lord's, but he assigns the child to a parent for safekeeping for a time. That's called childhood. Childhood. And then someday it will be adulthood and no longer it's, you know, the, the grip gets a lot less and then I'll finally we release and they start another family. But they're a gift, an assignment from God. And notice it says children are a, or excuse me, children. Not some children, not most children, but children, i.e. all children, your children. It, it's, it's all encompassing. Um God told Abraham, I will multiply you exceedingly. In other words, I'm going to give you children. Well, where would they come from? God, I will do it. God said, I'll do it. If you have a child, that child is mine. I created her or him, but she's on loan for just a short time. I'm, going to, I'm assigning you duty. And by the way, I'm going to hold you accountable. A gift. You see your child as a gift, which means there's no accidental births. There's no surprise pregnancies from God's point of view. They might be a surprise on our side, but not from his. So they're a gift. Number two, children are like a reward. The reward, that conveys the idea of pleasure. You know, think of payday, like a reward. God made man and woman, brought them together and the reward or the pleasure are children. I'm not talking sexual. I'm saying, what, what am I saying? I'm saying that from their union comes children. It's, and it, it's a great, oh, we're having a kid. We're having a child. Aren't they great? And then the second, third, or fourth comes along. And, oh, we're having a child. Another set of diapers. <laughs> Staying up late. Getting up early. I think at one time we had three of our kids in diapers all at the same time. That was expensive. But the fruit of the womb, again, is God's very personal trophy of his love, his choice reward. Their reward. They should bring us great pleasure. Isn't that sad that in our society, many times children are not looked upon as with great excitement and pleasure? A burden. I have to go through that. And sometimes, you know, we just look at children like, "Oh, we have to plan it out so far because what if?" and all this other. We we need to get a, a God's perspective. So they're rewarded, and then also they are arrows, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Usually, warriors are men. So the children of one's youth. I mean, picture the warrior. What is the, What do you do with an arrow? You. You guide it, right? You're the one that guides it to the destination, to the target. The warrior directs to the target. And what are we supposed to do as parents, especially as men? Direct them. Direct them. In fact, Malachi 2.15, last book of the Old Testament, he, he was saying this, he was talking about marriage, oneness. Why did God bring man and woman together? And then he made this part of the statement in verse 15. He says, because God seeks godly offspring. Malachi 2.15. God seeks godly offspring. That's what God seeks. That's why he brought Adam and Eve together. He seeks godly offspring. We need to make sure that as we are directing them, it's towards the purposes of God. By the way, it's impossible and incapable of a child to direct themselves. Remember what Psalm 51 says? Behold, I was. this is David speaking, I was brought forth in iniquity... And in sin, my, my mother conceived me. You can't leave a child to himself. You must train a child. You must, you must. In fact, Proverbs 22 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. You can't leave a child to himself. Unfortunately, in our culture, there are some that say, Well, just let him, let him just guide himself. Let him make his own choices. No, it's, it's us as parents. In fact, Proverbs 19 says, in your son while there's hope. Because there's a moment after a while that that, that, um, that clay becomes hard and their, their motivation and their hard attitudes become solidified and it's easier to do it when they're younger. It's not that it's impossible when they're older, but chasing while, your son while there's hope. Don't leave him to himself. It says a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The idea of left to himself is leave him in the state that he was born. Don't leave him in the state he was born. If you have a child, make sure that you train him. Correct correct your son and he'll give you rest. And then number three, we must train them individually. This is probably the most famous verse on parenting in Proverbs. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. By the way, the last part is not a promise. It's, all of Proverbs are just general statements. You train him up the way he should go. You know, he, he's going to do the right thing. That's a general promise. Excuse me, a general statement, not necessarily an absolute promise. But it says, let's look at the first part. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. That word train, really, the the, the root means pallet. And what they would do is... Uh, The nurse at the birth would take the newborn and actually crush some grapes up and put it on their palate to get them to start sucking. And then they would take it, take the baby and put it on the mother's breast for nourishment. So let's think about that. Uh, Train, get them to suck in the right direction. Get them to have a desire for spiritual things. Create a thirst for the right things. By the way, it was also used of young horses. They put just a piece of rope on a young horse to get and, and, and then break them so that they would be gentle. Get them from being self willed to under the control of the master. So it was used, train there was used for both newborn infants and young horses. But the point is create a thirst, get them going in the right direction. And notice the last part, in the way that they should go. And, and I, I looked up a number of commentaries, and uh, there's two really thoughts on this, in the way they should go. Some would say, well, in the way of holiness and godliness, and I agree with that. But the other said, in the way they should go is raise them according to their own bent. In other words, their passions, their gifts, the direction that God wants for them in a holy way, in a godly way. And I really think that in the way they should go, they should go, or he should go, is really both of those concepts. Guide them in holiness, but remember their individuality. I've had to learn this, because I have a family full of musicians. I can't sing a note. I can't play a note. I remember years ago, I used to play the, what was that called? Recorder, was it? Uh, you know, uh, that, was all, that was the extent of my stuff. And then I remember being in the choir, I think it was my senior year, you know, and you had a, uh, Prince, Prince, uh, j- you know, don't say anything. Just, just mouth it. <laughs> in other words, know your individual. Know what the child, what is God calling him to do? What does that mean? I need to be looking, listening as a parent. I need to be observing. I need to see their strengths, their weaknesses. I need to help guide them in the area that God may want to use them in. And then when it's all said and done, and this is one of the harder things, then you need to release them. It can cause a lot of problems to a marriage when the parent does not want to release the child. So we've got to release them. It's kind of like the catch and release program. When, uh, when we go home, my, at my dad's, we have a big pond, and sometimes I remember in like uh, May, the kids would go out fishing, and, and man, they get a big bass. It was, it was a big bass because it's a pond and, you know, they haven't been fished out or anything like that. And, they, hey, can we, you know, kill it and eat it? And Grapp would say, my dad would say, Mm-mm, no, no, no. Anything you catch out of this pond, you have to release back into the pond. Catch and release. Well, <clears throat> sometimes I think when God gives you a child, we think, we oh, this is ours. But you got to release for the blessing of others and the blessing of God. Again, sometimes that's not easy. We have to know our child, our children. And then finally, look at this, verse 5. Happy is the man whose quiver is full. That word full is in the intensive, really full. By the way, let's be satisfied with what God gives. Let's not be frustrated or irritable with the different sizes of quivers. It doesn't say that there's a number. I mean, I I was watching one lady and said she, she had 12. Does that mean that my wife needs to have 12 to be satisfied? No. God may want one for you or two or whatever. In other words, let's not get into comparing quivers. It just means that the quiver is full. God gave. Let's be satisfied. Bigger is not better. Bigger family is not better. What does God give? Just do it because, let's face it, we all have to stand before the Lord on how we did it, you know, how how we raised our kids. But notice that last part, and then we're done. Verse 5. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Gate was a place of decision. Speak is in the intensive. In other words, it's, it, what it's, I think he's saying is: Listen, these children are a blessing because they are even, even able to stand up against their enemies, and they have confidence. They have conviction. They're able to speak truth even to their enemies in the gate. That's why they're a blessing. Not just because you happen to have kids, but they have found their strength in God. It's like, the, like David in Psalms 18 when he says, I will love you, O Lord, my, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. I mean, you can kind of read, see that. And I mean, they're able to even speak to their enemy at the place of decision. You have trained your children to defend Christianity, to defend God. you go all the way through that. It's just blessing. And if you read Psalms 128, you'll notice the words blessing and, and happy and, and fruitful and all the different words. But then at the very end that you may see your children's children. Who knows? Will I see my children's children's children. Will I ever be maybe even great grand, great, great grandfather. But even if I do reach that age, How do I want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered, Dad? Do you want to be remembered as the things you had and you were a hard worker, which is great, and you you worked one more hour? Or do you want to be remembered as the man who spent time and trained and left a godly legacy for your kids? Steve Lawson, in, in his book, The Legacy, says this, Every man leaves a lasting influence that will affect future generations for centuries to come. Not all legacies are the same. What kind of legacy will you leave behind? A spiritual legacy is one that money can't buy and taxes can't take away. A spiritual legacy is passing down to the next generation what matters most. I use passing to the next generation what's mattering most.